Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning into this series, which focuses on rural health in the Midwest. Over 10 episodes, we talk with people in a variety of communities about their experiences and perspectives on rural life, employment, and health. Our aim is to deepen understanding of the complexity of rural life and celebrate rural areas. We're so happy you're listening and learning along with us. Welcome back to the Rural Health Series of Share Public Health. I'm Hannah Schultz, your host and producer for this series. Today we're going to talk about employment and worker safety. Our first guest is Nicole Crane. Nicole is an Executive Vice President of the Iowa Association of Business and Industry. She tells us a bit about herself. I live in Windsor Heights, Iowa, which is, uh, I guess, sort of a suburb of the Des Moines metro area. I'm originally from Blockton, Iowa, which is in Taylor County. It's a population of 192, so very familiar with rural Iowa. Uh, it's a great place. It really makes up the state uh, and, and look forward to talking about it today. Uh, just real briefly, if I may, uh, the Association of Business and Industry is a statewide business organization. A lot of our members are actually in manufacturing, but we have members in all industries. We were started in 1903 um, as a manufacturer's association and then expanded in the 80s to include everyone. We represent about 1,500 member companies and 330,000 employees in the state of Iowa. And that number you know, fluctuates from, from year to year, but it's over 300,000 Iowans that um, are employed by the member companies that join our organization. Iowa's workforce is 1.5 to 1.6 million people, according to Iowa Workforce Development. So at 300,000 employees, Nicole's organization represents about 20% of people working in Iowa. Nicole shares what she thinks are benefits of living and working in a rural community. It's hard to just say one thing because I think um, there are different lenses to look at it through. So uh, from an individual's perspective, I think one the, the biggest strength is the sense of community, the sense that everyone is watching out for one another. And I, I also think that is a good way to sum up um, the lens for an employer or for a farmer. You know, you hear all the time in rural communities, if, uh, if someone is going through cancer treatments and they have lots of corn to get out in the fall. You've got everyone in the area, whether they know that person personally or not, they bring out their semi-trucks, they bring out their combines, and they're all working together to, to get um, the job done and to help that family out. Same thing with rural employers. You know, we have a lot of our members are actually in rural Iowa. Um, we have a lot of manufacturers. They're some of the, the largest employers in those communities and those counties, and they're really watching out for one another. It's a, it's a team effort. And you have these employers who have built their companies up. Um, there have been family businesses. Some of them have started in the garage and, and they've sometimes had the one employee with them that entire time. And so you can see how employers and employees work together to make the company better, to make the community better. So I think um, that is the strength of rural Iowa is, is the community and the closeness uh, for, for everyone who lives in the area. You know, there's a lot of uh, dedicated people in rural Iowa. Uh, they care about their community. They care about the, the good work that they do. You know, I'm thinking again, specifically to manufacturing, but there's lots of different industries in rural Iowa, but um, 
we talked about community. So you see those employees coming to work every day and no matter in the manufacturing setting, what are they making? They take pride in what they're making. They go home and they talk about what they've done. Um, you know, and it also, I think it's a, for an employer and employee, rural Iowa provides a good work-life balance. Um, you know, you, you have close, uh, close travel to work, or even if you have to drive 20 miles, you're not driving in traffic, you're driving on an open road um, with great scenery. And so, you know, I, I think the quality of workforce in rural Iowa is the one reason or a very big reason why employers continue to invest and continue to um, encourage new employees to, to move to rural Iowa. And, that, you know, they don't want to move outside the state. The economy has changed in the last few years. The economy has changed definitely in the last few decades. I think Iowa has been very fortunate. We have a very robust manufacturing sector. And so, again, as, as we talked about earlier, a lot of ABI members in rural areas are those manufacturers. You've seen a resurgence in manufacturing. You've seen um, larger manufacturers uh, wanting to support and rely on those smaller suppliers that are close by. So you've seen the supply chain in rural Iowa and Iowa really work together. Um, so we've seen increased hiring in those rural areas. We've also seen increased challenges with the workforce and hiring because childcare issues, um, just because there's not enough workers for the jobs. These companies have been, um, again, growing, but they need more need more workers and they need people to, to come to the area. So that that is how we've seen um, how we've seen it change. We've seen job growth. But we've seen um, workforce challenges with qualified workers and also workers that are able and available to get to work. There is a sort of collective misperception that there aren't jobs in rural communities, which creates an interesting tension as we simultaneously hear about shortages of doctors, lawyers, nurses, and other professionals in rural areas. Nicole shares her thoughts on this. You know, uh, I wish I had the the answer for that one. I, I think Part of it is you go to rural Iowa. I think there's different definitions of rural, right? So Fairfield, Iowa, I think the majority of just general population would consider Fairfield, Iowa rural. Um, from where I'm from, Fairfield, Iowa is a big town. And so I think that's something when you're thinking of rural Iowa, people shouldn't just put on the cap of this is a town from 150 to 500 people. If you're thinking of rural Iowa, you need to think of um counties or, you know, general uh, population centers, Fairfield. Sheffield is a pretty small town. Garner, that's a town of 3,000 people. They have two companies that employ almost 700 people with those two companies. So, um, you know, I think the maybe part of the misperception is just the definition of rural uh, to some people. I think maybe part of the, the perception is just what people have have said it, through the years. Um, rather than saying, oh, look, come to Fairfield. There are, you know, not only do they have a very diverse square with lots of great places to eat in a performing arts center, but they have uh, manufacturing jobs that, you know, three shifts, and they also have professional opportunities in those manufacturing jobs. They need engineers. Oh, and, and they have a hospital and they need doctors, they need nurses. So I think part of it is Iowans were not always great at telling our story and telling what is out there and marketing it to others. So I think I think that's part of the challenge um, with with the misperception that there aren't jobs out there. And maybe it's uh, not the jobs that some people want. Um, so you know maybe 
they're not qualified for to be the doctor at the Jefferson County Hospital. But um, that doesn't mean there aren't jobs there. So I think some of it is just is is communication, is marketing. Um, part of it could just be definitional challenge. But I, I think that's I think that's a lot of speculation on my part. But um, you know, if you go to main streets in rural Iowa, sometimes you don't see a lot of activity. So then you just assume there isn't any opportunity there. And I, I think that's um, not a fair assumption. Childcare is a major challenge in rural communities. What happens when someone wants to work but doesn't have any options for childcare? So childcare is something that's really kind of hit our organization's radar in the last few years. Um, as unemployment in Iowa, both urban and rural, was extremely low. You know, at, before the pandemic hit, we were at 2.7% unemployment. That's virtually full employment. And you had lots of job openings at the time. I think there were like 60,000 job openings on the workforce development website. So clearly, we needed more people um, to work. And one thing that we kept hearing from members, especially in rural Iowa, is what about childcare? Um, we have people that will work, but uh, we don't have anywhere for them to send their kids or, you know, maybe they only have somewhere for their kids to go part-time, especially if they're school-age children. So we started trying to get some more information. What is, what really is going on with childcare in Iowa? And ABI is a business organization, but childcare is not really a business that we have represented. Um, so the, the childcare industry and the regulations and everything they go through is a whole new world for us. So we reached out to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation, and they actually have a focus on early childhood education. And they selected Iowa to, as one of the four states where they did a study. So in February, again, before the pandemic, we had a study that came out in partnership with them. It was called Untapped Potential. So in Iowa, there's $935 million lost annually due to childcare breakdowns. And then $781 million is directly due to absences and employee turnover because of their childcare challenges. And then I think this is especially true in Iowa, or excuse me, in rural Iowa, 69% of Iowans rely on some type of family care uh, to watch their children. So if you think of a situation where you may have somebody um, working the third shift and they're a single parent, clearly, and they, and they have, you know, a five-year-old, clearly no one is going to be watching their child if they're at work from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. So in that situation, you probably do have a lot of family care. You have an individual sending their child to a grandparent to return aunt uncle's house. And the um, the children then are watched by someone, not, not a child care center necessarily. So that was pre-pandemic. And, you know, you look at rural Iowa, um, you know, you look in the, in the urban areas, you have a lot of child care centers. In rural Iowa, I think you have a lot more in-home, maybe in unregistered uh, child care homes. And so it's hard to tell how big of an issue this is specifically in rural Iowa. But through this study, we have found where um, employees have turned down promotions at work, employees have quit jobs, employees have been late to work, um, employees are concerned about uh, what's going to happen because of their child care challenges. So that's something that we dove into. And then we've also been working with the Iowa Women's Foundation to look into what's been going on since the pandemic and getting some numbers there, which uh, again, <laughs> it's it's startling in to see that during the pandemic, uh, child care was still an issue. So at one point um, during this, and this is information that came from the child care resource and referral, 829 licensed centers 
closed temporarily, and that was as of March 31st, and then it represented a loss of over 50,000 slots across Iowa. So if you look at the economy in Iowa, about 80% of Iowa employers or more were considered to be essential businesses during the pandemic, which meant most families still needed to go to work and still needed to find somewhere for their children to go. And so that's uh, 50,000 slots when you're already in the middle of a, a child care, you know, challenged area um, is, is a big issue. So that's kind of what we're seeing with childcare. It is an issue, especially in rural Iowa. A couple of other issues that are challenging for rural employers would be transportation to ensure that their employees can get to work on time and also broadband. If you're talking about companies that want to expand in rural Iowa, they need to have access to connectivity. Also about uh, remote workers. If we have people that we want to work remotely in rural Iowa, we need to make sure that we have connectivity for them. And that's not just an, a rural issue. That is also an urban issue. But I think those, the childcare, housing, and broadband are probably things that you've heard in, in many of the conversations that you've, uh, you've had with people about what's going on in rural Iowa and what are some of the challenges. Those are the three that we continue to hear from employers, whether they're in Northwest Iowa or Southeast Iowa. We're going to pivot now to talk about workplace safety. I'll admit to you all that workplace safety is something I know almost nothing about. So my first question to Nicole in this part of our conversation is what's different about safety for rural employers versus urban employers? I think workplace safety is always a priority for employers. It's the number one priority. Their employees making sure they're safe and healthy at work uh, is, is paramount to the success of the company. Um, so I think no matter whether you're an urban or rural employer, I think you approach that the same way. It does probably depend on what industry you're in. If you're in manufacturing, you need to make sure that you have guards on your equipment. You need to make sure that you're doing your safety training. Um, you need to make sure that employees are coming to work and they're, you know, they're well rested. They're not on something. Um, so I, I think that's the same in, in urban areas though too. I think that's the same in an office setting. If people are tired, if people are on um, medication, if people are coming to work uh, with uh, something in their system they're not going to be at their best, which is endangers them, endangers others, and also can endanger the employer and the company. So I think employers should approach workplace safety the same, whether they're an urban area, rural area, whether they're in a trade organization like ABI, or whether they're you know at a bank or manufacturing or in a hospital. Again, if you're not working in a hospital, um, you may not need the mask, the face shield, the gown, everything in you know our pandemic times. But if you are in a manufacturing facility, probably going to need a mask. You know, I think employers work really hard, especially now in these pandemic times, to stay up to date with regulations. What are the best practices? When do we mask? How do we separate people? Um, how are we making sure, even before pandemic, how are we making sure that people are are stretching before they come to work or before they get on the line and all those things? It's a it's a lot of work for an employer to try to manage and try to keep um, the company running and keep their employees safe. I do think access to healthcare is something that is different in a rural workplace than in an urban workplace. I, I'm thinking specifically of you know University of Iowa or Cedar Rapids or Des Moines where our office sets in downtown Des Moines, we are 
less than a mile from two hospitals, less than a mile from, or less than five miles from five hospitals and uh, specialists. That's not the case in, in rural Iowa, in, in all situations, in some it is, but um, there, there are challenges for access to healthcare. Um, you talked about workplace safety. If there is uh, an injury in the workplace, making sure that that individual can then rehab and get back to work is there physical therapy available that they can have that? A lot of larger companies, urban or rural, they have on-site doctors. They have individuals that come in and can do physical therapy right there on site. Other places, you know, we have a, a company, 21st Century Rehab, they're a, they're a, a physical therapy. They go into rural hospitals and they set up there. And so that's how um, their physical therapy is offered. I'm not in the healthcare field. I know a lot of the people that uh, you work with are, so I'm not a healthcare expert, but I do think that is a challenge um, in rural Iowa is healthcare. And especially for small employers that maybe don't offer healthcare or individuals who live in rural Iowa that aren't employed by someone or are self-employed, I think getting health insurance um, and the affordability of insurance has been a challenge uh, in rural Iowa specifically for for quite a few years now. People do get sick, and unfortunately, sometimes we get injured. Nicole talked a bit about what impact this has on employers. A couple of things I will say is that what I've noticed in my time working at ABI, whether it be, you know, a workplace, an unfortunate workplace injury, whether it be a healthcare challenge that an employee is facing, employers really offer great benefits in Iowa. And um, one of those being health insurance. I think if you look at especially small manufacturers, they offer pretty robust health insurance plans and also time off plans. Um, so I think that's something that employers know. And so they try to build in into their, into their schedule, into what, into what's happening there. But like you said, if a doctor's appointment takes all day, as opposed to an hour, that's something that employer does have to work around. It's one thing, even if a, an employer has 25 people, if it's, it's another, if they have two people and this person was responsible for, let's say you're a, a small plumbing shop and this person was responsible for going out on uh, five calls a day. Well, that's, and that was the only person that was licensed to do it. So I think employers do a very good job of adapting uh, to the situation, especially if it's something planned, you know, if it's an emergency, emergencies come, come up, there's not a lot you can do. Um, if it's something that's planned, employers want to work with their employees to adapt to that situation. Um, you talked about critical access hospitals. I know a lot of times those larger healthcare systems are partnering with those critical access hospitals to try to bring someone down, you know, if it's for, for heart um, you know, bring down a trailer so you can do your run on the treadmill um, and your your EKG to do your your basic um, heart test if you've had heart troubles in the past or cardiac troubles. But that's not someone there every day in case you have a heart attack. Um, you're you are kind of limited if you know if someone's at work or someone's at home. What do you do if you're two hours from Des Moines or two hours from Omaha or Kansas City? It's it is a challenge, and um, I, again, I think employers try really hard to be flexible and adapt. And that's the only way uh, they're going to be able to remain successful. And I think employers also partner with those local hospitals to bring in specialists. I've seen a lot of employers that have helped fund 
new wings of hospitals or bringing in um, redevelopment or um, I should say remodeling hospitals or investing in a hospital in the community where they didn't have one before. So I think employers see the medical community as a partner, especially in rural Iowa, and want it to be viable and sustainable. We talked about Taylor County. So if you need chemo treatment, you need to drive to Creston, which is 35 miles away. And then you have to make sure that all your vitals are okay. And then you're sitting there probably for three hours, maybe an hour. I don't know. depends on what type of treatment you're getting. And then you're driving back home for three hours. So some people from the employee perspective, that's just going to put some people out of the, out of the workforce. They're um, not going to be able to work. And if you're a smaller employer, you know, how do you handle that when you, like you said, you need that employee there. Um, and then if you're the employee, what happens if you don't have insurance and you received it through your employer? So um, I've seen that many times, not from the employer employee perspective, but I've seen that in rural Iowa, just from the um, individual perspective. I think you see that a lot in agriculture communities. I don't even want to say rural communities. I think you see that in agriculture communities. Um, just the challenges that that provides if someone gets sick, um, the lack of access to specialty treatment, but also just the, the time consuming nature of um, getting there and back and what that means for that person. We talked about community in rural Iowa, and I, I still think that is the strength because a lot of times, you know, if it is a, if it is a couple and the, the spouse is working still, that spouse has to keep their job to be able to help that, um, the other spouse and their children if they have children. So you have a situation where community members are then the ones um, transporting them so now we're in COVID. How does that work? Because first of all, <laughs> no one can go in with you. And you also, if you have a suppressed immune system, don't want to be driving 35 miles with someone, probably even with masks on, um, to a chemo treatment or a radium treatment. I really appreciate how much Nicole cares about the businesses and employees her organization represents. I think the one thing that the public doesn't always understand or really grasp is how much employers really value their employees. They're not just a number that's punching in on a time clock. It is a partnership. It is something that employers, I hear stories every day of an employer who is making sure um, their employee is taken care of not only at work, but in their, their home life as well. And so I, I think that's something that maybe gets lost sometimes, but you know, we talk about workplace safety and health and just everything that's going on. Employers understand that employees aren't employees. They are people, they are humans, and they want to provide a safe place for them to work. They want people to feel that they have value when they go to work. They want people to feel that they have value when they're at home. And employers understand that what's happening at home and in their personal life does affect what's going on in the workplace. And I think that has been brought to light even more since the pandemic, when we are now seeing um, what actually people's homes do look like. You know, if, if you're not an essential worker, even if you are an essential worker, but you're able to work remotely, 
um, we have Zoom bombers all the time. Um, you know, you see see families, you see dogs. And I, I think that's been not a bad thing. That's been a, a great thing for employers and employees to understand what's going on in each other's lives. And by continuing to, to understand that, I, I think that helps everyone continue working towards that, that goal of safe workplaces, healthy people um, in a better Iowa. I'm a really proud uh, Iowan. I'm, I'm proud to represent the organization and the employers that I represent. It is something like you hear about um, these Iowa, these Iowa family companies and they do, they start in their garage or they start in, in their shed because something didn't work on the farm. And the next thing you know, they have 300 employees and they're supplying to John Deere and Toro and you know that all the cones on the side of the road are made in Iowa. I'm like, this is crazy. So that's why I get all cheesy and emotional and, you know, because I just think they have great stories to tell and it's, they have put so much into their um, to their business and to the people who make up their business that it's it's hard not to um, to smile and to just want to shout it out from the mountaintops all day long. Nicole's enthusiasm is a bit contagious. We're going to zoom in now and talk with John Grimes from Norfolk, Nebraska. John is retired and spent the last several years of his career working in safety in a food warehouse. He started by giving us some context of where he is. You know, Norfolk, we're about 20, 26,000, uh, our population uh, currently. Um, we have, we're, we're, we're pretty much the hub for Northeast Nebraska. So we have a lot of small towns uh, around us. Um, and actually at the warehouse I, I uh, was safety uh, and security at, we, uh, we pulled folks from, you know, 50 plus miles, other, other small towns around here to come to Norfolk to work um, at the warehouse and, and other industry. Uh, we do have uh, other industries in, uh, in our area here. Uh, and uh, so just a, a great town, been here uh, well right at the 40 year mark. And, uh, uh, you know, we're just uh, it's a good, good town. I don't know that I really think of I'm in a rural area or a non-rural area. I think uh, most folks would probably consider us uh, rural. For us, though, we are the larger city with several smaller uh, uh, areas, uh, communities around us. However, we're, we're small enough that we've got, we got great shopping, but we're going to go to the big, next bigger city, to Sioux City or to uh, Omaha or to Lincoln to shop and, and uh, uh, for certain things um, just to get out of, uh, out of town. I asked John how someone gets into a career in safety. You know, I actually started out with food safety. We were a food warehouse. And so I started out with food safety. And I, um, even with that, I, there was just things I, I didn't uh, know and needed to know. <laughs> Early on, I, um, I decided that, uh, you know, I, I wanted to get to know my regulators a little more and to, uh, of course, un understand and, and build relationship with those that were going to be regulating me anyhow and working with me and, and found them to be, you know, good folks uh, willing to help. Um, and so um, 
I did food safety. I was not afraid of the regulations, digging into them, trying to understand them. And then through that, over the years, uh, my uh, managers, the, uh, when, when there was uh, an opening for safety, um, I actually had been getting into assisting the safety um, uh, director at the time um, for, uh, for a while. And so uh, over time, um, <clears throat> it came down to, um, after a couple inspections, especially uh, from uh, regulators, that um, uh, they, were, they looked to me and asked if I would interview for uh, the, the, the safety manager position. And so said, yeah, you know, I would like to do that. And so we did, and, and uh, I got the position and, and uh, just uh, you know, started to rebuild the safety program and, and get to know my new regulators on the uh, safety uh, wellness side. John's a people person. He really likes getting to know people and taking care of people. He explains why companies care about safety. I mean, there's so many uh, different reasons why it matters, you know, as a, as an executive, um, uh, you know, or the financial folks in the company, if, if I don't have good safety and I'm having a lot of injuries, uh, God forbid fatalities, those hit the bottom line pretty hard. Um, you know, safety is going to affect work comp. Work comp is going to hit that bottom line. And, uh, and so, um, you know, besides that though, I mean, that's the money side of it, <clears throat> but, uh, on the other hand, you know, you just, just having your employees feel, uh, safer and better about, uh, where they're coming to work and, and, and having someone to go to if they find something or, or have someone that's not necessarily, um, working safely, uh, following certain rules. And so, um, there was just uh, many reasons over the years. Uh, you know, when I first got into safety, it was more about uh, okay, my numbers, and um, <clears throat> and uh, of course trying to stay out of trouble. And then um, over the years, you get to get to learn um, more about. At least I did uh, more of of the safety, and and it's it's not uh, it's less about the rules uh, in a lot of ways. It's more about, you know, understanding my people, what makes them tick, um, how do I get them to do what I need them to do to work safely. The numbers will take care of themselves if I can get my employees on board and uh, get them to, you know, uh, work with us and to work safely and to watch out for those around them, make sure they're working safely. I got into the safety in about 2006. Okay. I was I was dabbling in it a few years before that, so I um, what's that about uh, fourteen uh, years or so uh, now, um, and uh, like I said, I dabbled in it a little bit, helping the uh, previous safety person, and uh, starting to gather an interest for it. I asked John what's changed about safety over the years he worked in the field. Obviously, some of the guidance has changed, maybe gotten a little tougher. Um, <clears throat> but, um, you know, I think people, I, I'm going to say my people probably, I don't know if they changed too much. You know, they, um, I, you're still going to run into those. Uh, and I did. 
that uh, I'm sure down deep inside somewhere they, they do care about safety, but um, on the outside, they didn't show that they cared that much. Um, you know, I think uh, for me, it was more me changing and becoming more knowledgeable. And, <clears throat> you know, I, it, uh, it's with the OSHA rules and their, their oversight, you know, I really learned um, a little while into it that I'm, as a company, we're going to probably spend a lot more dollars towards work comp than I ever would toward OSHA citations. And so, um, you know, it's not like OSHA's out there every day in our warehouse and they're, they're picking out every little thing. Um, they, they have their other places to be and, and things to do. And so they, uh, and, but they're certainly, you know, out there and, um, uh, and do right, do the regulation, but it, um, so it was it really early on, I just uh, started to learn um, that I need to, I need to figure these guys out. I, or I need to be in compliance, but I need to, um, uh, and it's going to pay off bigger dividends for the company uh, and my employees. We, but we all win in safety if we if we uh, uh, do it well, and so just learned that uh, it's uh, if I can uh, prevent injuries of any kind that might end up in my work comp uh, system, then uh, that's going to be uh, you know real dollars that we can we can save on our bottom line, and and, and again I then I don't have employees that aren't here to do the work you know in the business we were in our grocery stores put in their uh, desire for groceries every day. <clears throat> and no matter how many were there to help pick those and load them on trucks and then drive them out to the stores, that whole thing needed to be taken care of, all those orders. And so it hurt when we had people not able to come to work that were scheduled. And so it was just, it was so many reasons why we needed to try and uh, prepare a, uh, and maintain a safe working place, keep those guys coming uh, in every day, able to do their jobs. Employee safety, that's, that's, that should be just something that we, we care about. And, and I know not everybody does. <clears throat> and, um, and again, even the employees themselves don't always think about um, their own safety and those uh, of them or what's around them. You know, they're not looking at the big picture when they grab some tool and they go to, to do something with it, um, you know, they're, they're just focused in on what's going on at the time. And so it, um, it's just, uh, it, I think it's important to, you got to care about people. That was something else I, you know, I learned earlier on too, is that, um, you, you really have to, if you, if you really want to make a difference, you really have to care about uh, the people that you're working with um, above you and, and below you. I, I mean, uh, whether the employees or the staff, you know, there's, there's a lot to care about there. And so somebody has to genuinely care um, to keep workers safe. It's obvious that John genuinely cares about his colleagues. He told me a bit about who works in the warehouse. 
we were lucky enough that Norfolk being somewhat of a hub of several smaller towns around the area, we could pull from those other towns. However, you know, there was a time when, uh, uh, when, you know, every year we, we knew we could find employees out there, good employees, because there was a lot of farmer community around us, um, as well as, as, as in Norfolk. And uh, so, you know, we were going to get these farm kids after they graduated high school uh, each year. And they had some common sense. They knew how to run big equipment and, uh, and uh, you know, just uh, had been, I don't know, I'll say raised right, as far as we were concerned. I will say that something that has changed over the years is there's less of that. Um, you know, they're, they're less in, or they seem to be less in the fields and running the big equipment. And um, so it became a little harder. Um, sometimes we, we, we couldn't just rely on common sense of someone uh, coming in, uh, you know, from a farm boy coming in uh, to work for us in the city. And uh, so that, that, uh, that was a struggle. Um, but uh, I, on the other hand, I've worked in, uh, you know, uh, larger communities uh, with our company uh, and other warehouses um, that we had. And even though we had gobs of folks to pull from, issues we found were drugs, drug use was higher and we had we struggled to find employees that could pass a post offer drug screen when we were trying to hire them. You know, it didn't matter too much where we went. We were going to have some struggles, um, whether it was in a larger community or or in the smaller communities. In my my opinion, I think it was the equipment these days that the farmers, uh, you know, uh, maybe not everyone, but a lot of them have um, to use. Uh, you know, they're, they're in the air conditioned cab. Now there's a lot of GPS in the tractors and some of them aren't helping out on the farm as much as they used to have to do with uh, the parents. Um, you know, they uh, just like city kids, they might be playing more video games and, and things uh, working on their thumbs. Uh, but um, not so much uh, coming, uh, you know, having that farm experience and, and working around some of that dangerous equipment and just having a, a general knowledge when they came in around our forklifts and things uh, as to, to how to work around equipment like that and to be able to hop on a piece of equipment and, and uh, have a general understanding of how to raise and lower and, and uh, you know, go back and forth and things. John told me how safety is incorporated into new employee onboarding. You know, we start, of course, with the post-offer screening as far as, you know, how strong is their back, uh, the shoulders, arms, knees, all of those, uh, those things, make sure they're able to do uh, the job. We, you know, we, we have to have job descriptions and uh, know the limitations. Um, uh, what are the capacities that an employee is going to have to, to have to, um, what are they going to have to lift at a maximum lift? What's their general average pounds of lift? Um, you know, and just, they have to know all that. So we start clear back at the hiring process of, um, not just wanting a good employee, but we, you know, and we do that to protect ourselves as a company, but we also want to protect the employee. I, I shouldn't put an employee 
<clears throat> that uh, the therapist, uh, physical therapist says, or the doctor says, um, really shouldn't be doing this job. I shouldn't expose them to that job. I should be honest up front and, and let them know that, <clears throat> excuse me, that, um, that, you know, I, I mean, I'm sorry, maybe we got something else, but uh, this job is uh, not, not good for you. Cause uh, it, it really we, we could hurt you and I don't want to hurt you. And uh, so that, then there's the, uh, once we bring them on the first uh, few days, at least were um, safety training, just going through policies, uh, our different uh, um, training programs for safety, how to work safely, um, uh, you know, covering the, the building a little bit. There's a general orientation around the building and how to get there. I mean, we were, <coughs> excuse me, we were about a million square feet of warehouse. And uh, so, and broken up, we'd built onto the building so many times. And so it was uh, easy to, for new folks to get lost. And so we, we like to take them around and uh, show them things. Um, of course, you have certain uh, uh, certifications on equipment and things that we had to do um, per the OSHA uh, guidance, but you know, beyond the OSHA guidance, I mean, <clears throat> it really comes down to a person before they operate a heavy piece of equipment and could kill themselves or someone else you want them to understand uh, the rules and, and how that machine operates safely. And so uh, you go through all of that um, fall protection. We did have uh, places where they had to uh, maybe get up in the air and do things. And so um, we just had a lot of uh, general safety things that we talked to them of. Um, one time it was uh, probably a day and a half of stuff like that, that we went through. Um, and then even just to put them on their, their job, once we're done with all of that, we usually spent uh, close to another week. <clears throat> they they uh, mirrored someone and worked right with them just to make sure that they uh, understood things. And, and, um, and it gave us more time to catch unsafe beha uh, behaviors if they were, uh, <clears throat> if they had those you know, when they came in, you know, you bring in, you're used to doing things a certain way and you come in to work <clears throat> for a, a, a company. Um, you know, even if we teach you the right way to do something, there's going to be a time where either you're struggling or something and it, it in your mind, it's like, oh, you know what, I can do it faster this way, even though I'm supposed to do it this way. And so <clears throat> those were uh, those were things. Those unsafe behaviors uh, really became big, and uh, in, in making us create a behavioral safety program. Okay, we're going to talk about the elephant in the room: COVID nineteen. We've all seen stories about factories that have been hotspots for the virus. I asked John how his warehouse has responded to COVID nineteen. I would say it has certainly thrown its. Um, kinks into things early on more so uh, than later on, uh, you know, early on, not really totally uh, understanding things yet. Um, but, you know, one of the benefits <clears throat> it, it, it's to a, to a degree, it was a hindrance for me sometimes with safety, but on the other hand, it was probably a more of a benefit to us during COVID is that, you know, our employees, Though we did come together at the beginning of the, each shift and stretch and warm up and have a short little meeting, pre-shift uh, meeting, uh, talk about safety before we let them go out and go to work, 
Um, and you know, so you, you, you watch your spacing during that, but from there, it was pretty much, uh, each employee was, uh, you know, individually working. They would go down the stairs, they'd get on their equipment, their forklift or their, um, uh, double pallet trucks. And they drive to, a uh, you know, put on their headsets and order the, they say ready and order comes to their headset. And um, then they, uh, they start heading off individually through the warehouse to pick those pieces for those individual orders and you know, go to the dock when they're done, <clears throat> drop it off, you know, say ready again. So another order comes into their headset and they just continue to go. So it wasn't too much um, in the warehouse where most of our employees are, wasn't too bad for them to, um, too hard for them to social distance. They, they just are rarely um, right around each other. They're not, not handing each other uh, tools and things. Um, they're pretty much on their own. Uh, in the office, you know, a lot of them could work from home. And so social distancing wasn't a, a, a big issue there either. Um, I, you know, I think most of them probably uh, didn't mind working from home. As I said before, John is a people person, and he's made partnership and collaboration an essential part of his work. I don't know about other safety folks, but um, I, I am I am probably more of a relational person. Uh, obviously, as as uh, we talked about, it's come up many times. But um, I I again I up front I just decided. Uh, I, I didn't want to do this alone because I didn't have all the knowledge that I needed. And I don't know if we ever do, you know, we should always be uh, lifelong learners, but um, you know, so besides, besides reaching out to my regulators, uh, uh, OSHA, EPA, um, you know, from there, I found other ways to get involved. The local emergency planning committees or LEPCs, you know, every county in, in America is supposed to uh, be involved in or, or have their own LEPC. And, um, you know, and that's, that's making uh, uh, law enforcement, uh, fire and rescue, the uh, hospital, the schools, um, other agencies around town, uh, anybody that is kind of concerned uh, or has a role in uh, in safety. Um, now the LEPCs are are weighed more heavily towards uh, has hazardous materials, and so that's what we try to uh, we work with the industries that have those uh, hazardous chemicals and store them and ship them and maybe create them. Uh, so the LEPCs are a mandate from EPA um, to uh, for these groups to come together. And so, you know, I, I've been chairing our LEPC here in uh, Northeast Nebraska. We're actually a, currently a, a six county LEPC uh, with maybe growing, uh, adding a few counties in the near future. But um, so, you know, we're coming together quarterly and we're, uh, we're looking at uh, uh, not not so much employee safety, but safety for the communities that we uh, we are in, and uh, they're in our counties. And so we're working with the companies that have the chemicals, and we're kind of that liaison to the public 
who, who may know about what's in their community and may not know about what's in their community as far as hazardous chemicals. And so we try and bring that all together uh, quarterly and uh, make sure we have uh, plans in case a, a hazmat incident happens. Uh, but, uh, you know, from there, the State Emergency Response Commission that I'm in, uh, that is just at more of a state level. So I'm working with the uh, NDEE, uh, which is the, uh, was the Department of Environmental Quality in Nebraska. Now it's, uh, they brought in energy with them. Uh, and, uh, state fire marshal you know all the state different offices that are involved in those same things and hazardous materials um so i just made a lot of uh, great uh, friends and and uh, know a lot of folks um uh, around the country actually through those those things but it, i i like to stay pretty involved with the safety council then i uh, I, I chair the board currently but uh, doing some adjunct training for them and so I, uh, I just when I retired I was like I didn't want to stop I mean I don't think you ever <clears throat> stop being a safety person um, it has to become something that's you know in your heart in your mind and, and that you uh, you just do it's part of you and so I wanted to be able to continue to help others and um, so any any safety training I can I can help with and uh, or just consulting just uh, make myself available, but uh, but staying involved, really important. I asked John what other people like me who know very little about workplace safety would be surprised to hear about. My leaders, at least, used to think um, more on, well, you know, like with maybe an incentive program. We're just going to focus this incentive program on the warehouse people because they're the, they're the ones really at, at risk out there for injury. You know, what's 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 the office person got to worry about? You know what, there's plenty in the office um, that uh, could go wrong and I've seen it. I don't, I don't know how many injuries I've had with office employees. And uh, so things that uh, that we we maybe had to change the way we were doing something or, or you know, these days ergonomics big for especially those working at home this last year uh, and maybe still continually. I. Um, you know, ergonomically, I can just about picture how some of their uh, computer stations look, and they're not very ergonomic, uh, probably. And so, you know, I'm wondering, will employers start to see work comp issues in the near future, if they haven't already, from just office setups at home? And uh, maybe they didn't take the time to make sure that they were, they were, um, following just good ergonomic rules and and uh, taking care of themselves. When I think of workplace injuries, my mind immediately jumps to really, really bad scenarios. John confirmed that this is not the majority of work injuries. Pretty commonly, that I, what I found didn't matter the job you're doing, how much you're lifting, but it was still it would still fall into the strains uh, and sprains category. That was going to be most of my injuries, they weren't the, the serious, uh, real serious injuries, a smashing, a crushing injury, ran over something like that, um, uh, or loss of a, 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 a body part. Um, they were, they were just strains, you know, it was whether it was in the warehouse and someone, uh, 
was lifting improperly. Um, and so they, they ended up straining a back or a shoulder or something like that. And, and, and since that was most, what most of my work comp dollars went to was these, these strains was, um, you know, we, we got to focusing more on actually understanding how do strains happen and how can they be prevented? Cause they can be prevented. And then, uh, working with my employees in train further training, as to how to do that. And then behavioral safety audits where my supervisors would help watch folks throughout the day and see how they're lifting. And if they put themselves at risk by lifting something improperly, we didn't, we didn't pound on them, <clears throat> but we had a, a quick short little meeting with them as to, you know, Hey, you, <clears throat> you did all these things, right. But you reached to lift. Uh, and it doesn't matter what the weight of it, it always is, you know, it could be a pencil on the desk and somebody reaches or twists, twists wrong. And I've got a strain injury. Um, you know, the, uh, even though er ergonomic type injuries um, like carpal tunnel are by OSHA considered more an illness because, because they come on over time, they still, um, you know, it's still an injury. It's going to hit my work comp. And so uh, just helping folks again, learn, cause they don't, they don't think about it, that uh, they may end up with some carpal tunnel or strain when they sit down to work on their laptop. You know, I, I'm not the greatest at it when I'm at home uh, either. I have pretty good posture here in my office, but, uh, but otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I do think about it and I will correct myself now and then but it's not the first thing I think about when I sit down with my laptop on my lap and on the bed or something. So strains primarily, it doesn't matter what, what uh, uh, field you're in, what you're doing, how much you're lifting. Um, they are just a possibility uh, for anybody. And so we all need to, um, you know, stay in condition as much as we can and just think about things before we act and how we're doing them. John brings up some interesting questions here. As more people are working from home, what's the employer's responsibility if someone gets injured while working? You know, one of the things that has come out of both of these conversations is that safety is safety. It doesn't matter if you're in a town of 47 or a city of a million. Thank you both for your commitment to rural employers, employees, and for sharing your experiences with us. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Share Public Health. Thank you to the Injury Prevention Research Center, Iowa Center for Agricultural Safety and Health, the Healthier Workforce Center of the Midwest, the Heartland Center for Occupational Health and Safety, the Great Plains Center for Agricultural Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center, the Prevention Research Center for Rural Health, and the Rural Policy Research Institute. The theme song for this series is Walk Along John, it's performed by Al Murphy on fiddle, Mark Jansen on mandolin, Brandy Jansen on banjo, Warren Hanlon on guitar, and Aletta Murphy on bass. Al learned these songs from a fiddler named Delbert Spray, who is from Cahoka, Missouri. A transcript, evaluation, and discussion guide for this episode are available at mphtc.org and in the podcast notes.